a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Here it is a Tuesday again already. I'm not, I don't say that like it's a bad thing, by the way. That means it's a chance to visit with my friend Eric Peters for ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you today? I'm pretty good, and it looks like Kiev is back on the front burner again. Boy, is it ever. i got to get your reaction to uh, some of the news that has come out and actually been confirmed in the last few days. Uh, what's this, 12 secret uh, spy bases or you know black bases that the CIA has uh, had in Kiev for the last, or at least in Ukraine, no, for, for the last 10 me. years? Yes. And, they wouldn't do such a thing. And confirmation of the uh, bio labs that we were told don't exist there, but now yep. we're told, well, they do, but it's a good thing because it's just food safety or something like that. Yeah, and you wonder why they're so interested in endlessly propping up this Zelensky Cretan, and that includes uh, our dear friend Nimrata Haley in South Carolina. You know, I, I have to admit, it was it was the differentiation between conservatism and neoconservatism that finally broke me out of being a conservative and, and put me into yep. full-fledged libertarian mode. But that, that started clear back after 9-11, you know, with the invasion of, oh, sure. of, of Afghanistan well, and Iraq. You know, it's fascinating. The left managed to penetrate uh, traditional conservatism, and you know they style themselves neoconservatives, but what they are uh, is left liberals who uh, believe in this universal world order that will be governed by them and, of course, paid for by us, meaning you and me. And as far as Nimrata Haley goes, the thing that strikes me about her, the thing that I find most repellent about her is not so much her endless uh, shilling for for wars and and for us to pay for them is this posturing of herself as this pushing of herself uh, to the to the to the extent that she doesn't seem to acknowledge that nobody wants her. You know, we're constantly told about our representatives. We're told that these people are picked by us to represent us. Well, this woman has been repudiated by double digits and worse in every public. Uh, uh, Every time she's been put forward uh, to be affirmed or rejected by the public, she's been rejected, and yet she won't accept that she's been rejected and go away. Well, when she lost her home state's primary last week, and she said, you know, I said I would stay the course no matter what happened, I was getting these vibes of, I can make you love me. You know, it, it, it came off as that kind of desperate, stalkery kind of attitude. That, it's psychologically revelatory to me. I'm sorry I'm a little stumbly this morning. I haven't had all my uh, requisite coffee, but <laughs> I think these people are so narcissistic. They actually do consider themselves they're the leaders, and it's our job to follow. And that awful doctrine has been enmeshed so deeply now in our culture that it's become the, the antipodal opposite of what it once was. You know, we were taught this as kids that, well, you know, we elect representatives to represent us. It's what the word means. You know, they're supposed to serve as our proxy. They're supposed to convey the will of the people. That's what democracy is supposed to be all about. Instead, it's this top-down uh, lecturing, condescending vibe that we get from people like her. You know, I know best. I will tell you what to do, but you, you should vote for me because I know best, oh, even if absolutely. you don't like me. No, and, and let's uh, while we're on this subject, let's talk about um, 
you know, Trump has had everything but the kitchen sink thrown at him, and yet he's, yeah. he sure is collecting these uh, primary victories one after the other. It seems pretty clear this guy, barring something really unfortunate, he's going to be the nominee. Well, yeah, and I think it's it's not unrelated to the Nimrata phenomenon and all the rest of it. People are so exasperated and frustrated uh, at being told that this is who you must accept, whether it's Nimrata or Mitt Romney uh, or uh, or somebody of that type, that they've just had it. And Trump is the only weapon that's on the field. It's not so much about him. I think people are discarding all of his various and many flaws and picking up that weapon and using it to kind of, you know, shove it into the teeth of these people who have become insufferable and unendurable. So what role could she play? I don't think there's any path to victory for her, but she's hanging in there. Is it just to collect the money, the donations, so she can turn around and, you know, play spoiler against Trump? It seems to be that way, though, from what I've gathered, even that is beginning to uh, to fall away from her, probably for the same reason that it's fall, fallen away from Hillary. She's kind of the, the, the Hillary Clinton of the GOP. She's not liked, you know, uh, even though she she um, she holds the positions that the neocons like, she personally is not liked. Again, the fact that her own state rejected her by double digits just speaks volumes. So I think she's untenable. I don't know why she continues to stay in there other than to collect a check. I don't think there's any scenario um, wherein she could potentially replace Trump. I mean, if they manage to put him in prison or do some other thing to take him out, and they're going to bring her out. And prop her up and, and do that. If they if they do that, the the election will become even less legitimate than it than it was the last time. Most people just will stay home. I know I'll stay home. I'm not going to waste my my time and effort, even to the extent of going to the elementary school down the road to cast my ballot from for Nimrata Haley as opposed to Joe Biden. What's the point? But you have to choose one, right? Yeah, I know. That's what <laughs> they'll say, right? You have to be either shot in the head or shot in the stomach. Come on, you got to choose one, or somebody's going to choose for you. Yeah, well, you know, the thing that interests me more is who's going to replace Biden. I think it's become inevitable at this point. And you read the tea leaves, at least I do, and, and it seems to me they're hanging him out to dry at this point. They're no longer covering up for him. Uh, every single day now I'm seeing stories about uh, uh, that suggest that, look, this guy's got to go. You know, they've all but said it. And so now the question becomes, OK, well, once he's gone, who will come? And I don't know who that will be. You know, I don't think it can be Gavin Newsom. I think that it would be very difficult for the uh, for the Democratic Party to throw Kamala Harris, that strong black woman, under the bus um, in favor of a white man, even though Newsom is ideologically exactly what they want. Uh, so where does that leave us? I think it leaves us with Michelle Obama. And God help us all if that happens. That I know that's that's one of those uh, possibilities that actually does give me just a mild amount of heartburn. Like, really? Mm-hmm. It, but but. I also heard this scenario, and I thought, oh, okay, maybe, maybe. If Biden were to hang on through the election and, and somehow miraculously, here come the air quotes, win, yeah. <laughs> um, what's to stop him from just graciously stepping aside, the noble white knight that he is, and uh, then having Michelle Obama or Kamala you know, step up and take his place? I mean, you're right. Wokeness dictates that they really can't hop over the uh, intersectionality of either Kamala or <laughs> Big Mike. You know, to go to Gavin Newsom. After all, he's a white man. You know, that that would yeah, be that's repudiating. That's a wonderful way to put it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a wonderful way to put it. Um, but you know, I, I've got some personal insight here. At least, it, it, maybe my mom. I think I've mentioned to you on the air has dementia, and I've observed her decline uh, over the last several years. And what seems to be characteristic when when people who are afflicted with that uh, that illness go down that road 
uh, they reach a point where it starts to kind of accelerate and compound. My mom went from being uh, somebody who was somewhat lucid, I could have a conversation with her, she knew who I was, to within the space of a year, she doesn't recognize me anymore. I mean, I could be the janitor. Mm. You know, She has no comprehension of who I am. I think Joe is already well down that road. I don't think Joe is going to be able to even be propped up in front of a teleprompter six months from now. I think it's not going it's, it's to, it's, it's a scenario where I don't think he's going to be able to make it to the election. That's my prediction. Well, the decline just from a year ago, I was watching a clip of him from, from a year ago, and it's noticeable. I mean, he, he oh, yeah. is far, far down that road of, of uh, you know, cognitive decline. What I see when I look at him is the same thing that I see in my mom's face. You know, she's got, in my mom's eyes, I should say, to be more accurate. Uh, it's this vacant stare. It's this, I don't know what I'm doing here stare. And he's got that. And I'm not saying it to be mean and I'm not a doctor. So I'm, you know, whatever, for, you know, for whatever my opinion's worth. But I, I mean, I immediately honed in on that look that he has. Like he has no idea why he's in this room, what he's supposed to be doing. And that's exactly how my mom looked. I've actually heard many people who either deal with uh, dementia patients on a daily basis or whose parents, you know, like, like, uh, your mom have, are going through dementia, but that's that's exactly what they say. You know, they say this is this is abusive. It's elder abuse to keep trotting him out there. Yep. But yep. at the at the end of the day, of course, they've got to stop. Uh, what what does what does James Howard Kunstler call Trump? The great golem. The go- oh, the the I think the great the golden golem of greatness. <laughs> What a way with words. <laughs> that is just brilliant. Yep. By the way, I got to give you high points for uh, um, the Hillary Clinton of the GOP for, for Nikki Haley. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, I've heard sticks and stones will uh, break my bones, but words can never hurt me. That one would sting. I can't think of a worse insult than to be well, like, yeah, the, the Hillary those Clinton. Sting are the ones that have the ring of truth to them. You know, that's that's what makes them hurt. Well, we we have choices that go beyond just who are you going to cast your vote for. After all, uh, it really comes down to who do you want to rule over you. Well, I don't want anybody yeah. to rule over me, but me. So maybe that's where I yeah, need to focus I my and efforts. I wish more Americans. I wish more Americans um, had that sense, sentiment, and my hope is that they're beginning to recover it. I do think they are. I think one of the salutary, unintended consequences of everything that's been going on is that people are looking at this. They're looking at Biden, and they're looking, this guy is is completely incompetent, leaving aside whether he's evil. He's incompetent. And in this pervasive sense that these people have no clue what they're doing, they're 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 inept. And when, when you encounter that, your instinctive reaction is, well, I better start looking out for myself. I better start thinking about what I need to do to uh, to, to shore myself up against the, the fallout of all of this, this Serial incompetence that's hold, happening. Hold all that over the thought. Place. Hold that thought. We are up against the clock here. Eric Peters is my okay. guest. We'll be back in just a moment. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com is my guest. If you hop on over to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, I have a note, or actually I have a link in today's show notes that will take you directly to Eric's website. Eric, uh, we talk a lot about uh, EVs. After all, they're being forced on us, so <laughs> that's one aspect of it. But I'm seeing some some hopeful headlines as I, I read your website. Um, tell me about the end of the electrified road. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting in that this whole EV phenomenon is tracking very much with 
uh, what happened with the vaccines. You know, there was this mania initially. Oh, these are the panacea. These are what's going to solve the pandemic. Uh, everything's going to go great. Uh, and then the truth began to uh, leak out. Well, these things actually don't prevent you from catching the sickness. Uh, they don't pre- prevent you from spreading it. And, you know, they actually come with a lot of bad side effects. And the result of that was that people start, stopped taking the jab. And now we're at the point where I think the uptake, as they put it, is something like 20 percent of the population, the other 80 percent having had enough of it. Well, it's the same with the EVs. You know, people were told this is the miraculous answer to this problem of climate change. Well, we're finding out, leaving aside the climate change, that these things have a lot of side effects. And so people aren't buying them. And it's gotten so bad uh, that the manufacturers, the car companies that committed fully to this, are having disastrous problems. Ford the other day reported that it's going to stop shipping any 2024 Lightning EVs because there's so many unsold 2023 Lightnings just sitting on dealership lots. GM has walked back uh, its commitment to EVs. Mercedes, which said it was going to be all electric by 2030, now says, well, maybe we'll be 50% electric by 2030. Uh, Volvo put a pillow over the head of its Pulsar electric division. So what next? What's going to happen? You know, we've got a kind of a half-Soviet economy in which the government is pushing things on the economy, but people are still free to say they don't want it and, and do something else. So it it seems to me that what the government is going to do to solve this problem is to take away that option somehow. And probably that will take the form of limiting gas supplies or making gas so prohibitively expensive that an EV will seem like an affordable alternative. I like that you make that connection with what's happening here. It is just an introductory phase of a planned economy. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, how many people remember? I guess a lot of people are too young to remember, you know, the images that came out of the Soviet Union of what their grocery stores looked like or what the lines looked like just to get toilet paper or shoes. Sure. Well, the Soviet Union came apart, what, 30 years ago, something 35 years ago, long time ago. So, uh, you know, for for, for people who are 30 today uh, or even 40, they, they don't have any memory or they have very dim memories of the Cold War and what the Soviet Union was all about. So they didn't have that object lesson right in front of their faces, literally, to contrast with the reality of what's going on today. So, you know, we're running the same experiment again, and the, the results are going to be the same. You know, um, as, as far as the, the electric vehicles go, too, um, there was somebody who made the point after the big uh, cellular outage last week, and it was this was yeah. just a meme that ran across my feed, but it said, well, if, uh, if all those networks can be shut down, then wouldn't they be able to shut down your EV as well? <laughs> and, oh, Yeah, and it's not just your EV. I, you know, I don't know whether you, you followed this, but GM had to recall the entire run of all the 2024 uh, Chevy Colorado pickups and GMC Canyons that had come off the line because of glitches in the software. Oh, boy. You know, these it's not just EVs that are devices. All the new vehicles that are being made are very much like cell phones, and they're getting updates over the air. Uh, and they're connected to the hive mind. And just like your cell phone, just like your computer, when they get hacked or they glitch or the programming doesn't work, well, then neither does your car. I tell you, I see a day somewhere down the road, maybe not too far down the road, where I'm going to have to have a horse if, if I'm going to you know, get out and about town. Do you know what's ironic, though? A horse is arguably in many ways a superior means of transportation than an EV. Oh, you wouldn't have to twist my arm too hard to, to look at in that direction. You know, I mean, a horse, you can go out, uh, throw a saddle on it, and go for a ride pretty much any time you need to go somewhere. You can't do that with an EV, can you? No. Nope. The charging times, the limited range, and so forth, the cold is going to affect it. 
Yep. It, it's it's like somebody posted something on Lou Rockwell that I thought was interesting uh, in, in terms of it's a good way to visualize what we're dealing with. Uh, you know, if you can imagine that, that there were nothing out there but EVs and that was the only type of vehicle available and that the combustion engine was a new invention, that it just came out this year. Can you imagine what people's reaction would be? Look, here's a vehicle that costs half as much as the vehicles that we have mm-hmm. that goes twice as far and that takes a fraction of the time to refuel and be able to get going again. Do you think that would sell? Interesting. No, it's a good analogy. It's a good analogy as opposed to, uh, I don't know, could we sell it under the whole green rubric? Because that seems, <laughs> that seems to be the leverage they're using to get people to buy EVs. Well, they're gaslighting people to accept an inferior product somehow. And, and you, you see this, the pretzelizing of people, the way they contort themselves and bend over backwards to try to rationalize all of the EVs deficits. And as far as the green thing, that's a, that's a really outrageously despicable lie. Even if you buy into the whole climate change thing, it does not help the climate if you're concerned about carbon dioxide uh, to build vehicles that weigh three tons that have a two-ton battery that consume enormous amounts of electricity that require the generation of a great deal of electricity using hydrocarbon fuels to generate the electricity. Wow. So I, I noticed you you had posted an update because because of your understanding, because of your take on EVs, um, you, you have uh, kind of parted ways with Mercedes. Talk to me a yeah. little bit about that update that you posted, uh, Mercedes reconsiders. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like they reconsidered having Eric as, as their evaluator, but it sounds well, like they're reconsidering not EVs. Not yet. Well, they got mad at me because of some of the reviews that I'd written about their devices. And, you know, I wasn't being gratuitous about it. I was just pointing out some of the facts about living with a device. That's what I call EVs. Anyway, they, they gave me a shuck and jive about how I was just too far away from the press pool for them to continue to deliver me cars, notwithstanding they've been delivering cars to me for the past 20 years, and I haven't moved. I'm in the same place, so I know that's a lot of nonsense. Mm. Anyway, they had committed as a company to building nothing but electric cars by 2030. So naturally, what use do they have for a journalist like me who tells the truth about EVs? Well, they've had to walk that back very publicly because they're in perilous straits, just like all the other manufacturers that have made a commitment like that. People aren't buying these things. There's nothing luxurious about sitting at a sheets for an hour waiting for your device to charge, you know? I mean, there's a reason why people buy first-class tickets, and it's not just for the seats on an airplane. It's so you don't have to stand in the cattle queue for an hour just to get on the stupid airplane, right? Very true. Well, that's one of the reasons you buy a luxury car because you want an experience that's 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 more comfortable, more uh, more enjoyable than the experience of somebody who's out there driving. Oh, I don't know, a Chevette, but a Chevette doesn't have to sit at a, at a sheets for an hour to get gas while thuggy people are, are sizing you up and deciding whether they're going to carjack you. Something you point out too in your article about Mercedes is. Really, they ought to be thanking you because you're not doing this to be obnoxious or to pick on them. You are speaking the truth as a friend, and people may take that truth to be hard, but you know you ought to be grateful for friends who will actually tell you the way things are rather than those who just want to put soft things in your ears. Well, well, that was my intention. I had a private conversation with someone at Mercedes about this, and I pointed out, you know, at one time you guys had magnificent vehicles with uh, signature engines, like your magnificent V12s and your turbo V8s, and you know these were things that were objectively uh, just astounding engineering achievements and just really uh, just delightful things to have. And what you've done now is to create a device that's just the same as any other device. Why would somebody want to pay $100,000 to drive your battery-powered device 
versus a $30,000 battery-powered device from Kia because it has a big plastic three-pointed star in, it, in, in its front end. You really think people are going to buy that? That's a good point. Yeah, kind of takes a little bit of the luster off of that uh, Mercedes uh, brand. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they've begun to realize it. You know, marketing does not solve all your problems. At the end of the day, there has to be some substance behind the marketing. I don't know whether you caught the article I did about the Porsche Taycan, which Porsche markets as a turbo. And, of course, it's an EV. It has no turbo. It has no engine. (laughs) You know, they're trying to to glom off of the, the reputational appeal of a 911 turbo you know porsche you hear the porsche name and even if you're not a porsche file you know that that kind of registers in your mind wow cool porsche turbo this is a device well anyway these devices uh that, that they, they they sell for about two hundred thousand dollars and they lose half that value in less than four years because you know people are, are looking at it and going what the hell am i paying 200 grand for this thing for it's just a freaking dewalt power this tool is the brian hyde show This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you so much for joining us today. I know there are many voices out there, some of which have fun, soft things to put in your ears. I'm not one of those voices. And it's not that I'm here to, you know, make you feel bad. I'm just here to, I'm here to talk about things that hopefully will inspire you to uh, to rise up to the challenges in front of you. Uh, without without fear, I know there's there's a lot of talk out there, and I think a lot of the media information that's pointed at us on a daily basis is intended to make us feel broken, afraid, unsure, you know, very timid, waiting for someone to to tell us you may do this or you may not do that. But I just want to make it very clear: if you're going to be the person that you were born to be, you're going to have to choose to start making your own steps. you got to find the courage to make your feet start moving, even if you don't know you know, the entirety of the path in front of you. That's hard. I've, I've been there myself, and, and in some ways I still am, but uh, I just, I'm here to tell you it can be done, and life takes on a much deeper sense of purpose and meaning and, and yes, even happiness in the midst of, of challenges and trials. So for what it's worth, I, I throw that out there because... I'm going to share some heavy news with you here. Um, I'm I'm a little discouraged as I look around and I see what appears to be the folks in authority, particularly the Washington, D.C. establishment, seems absolutely determined to steer us into an intentional military conflict with Russia. If that's not what they're doing, well, they're missing a really great opportunity. So... It seems to bring it war always is, I think it's the worst that humanity can do. It's the, the worst that we can do to each other. But add that, that atmosphere of conflict to a world where untruth is the defining dynamic of our time. In other words, who do you trust? Let's, I'm, I'm going to take the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So some things came out in the last few days, and, and I believe these have now been cor- corroborated one of them was that the CIA met with the individuals who pulled off the Maidan coup back in uh, 2014, so 10 years ago in Ukraine, which deposed a uh, Russia-friendly president and installed an, uh, how can I put this, an American-friendly government with the help of the CIA, or at least the encouragement and direction of the CIA and some funding and so forth. And it's very clear that the CIA was involved in this. 
In fact, not only were they involved in this, but uh, it's very clear that the CIA built black sites in, uh, in Ukraine, secret spy bases where they could spy on Russia. And they've been doing this for the last decade. There also are biolabs which have been found in Ukraine, which at first you know, our government denied, we know there's no biolabs in Ukraine. You guys are nuts for even thinking such a thing. Now it's coming out, well, okay, but there are, but, you know, we just took over former Soviet biolabs and we're just trying to use them for, you know, food production and, and for, for food safety and that kind of thing. Yes, yes, I'm sure. And, and remember, this is the same people who apparently had uh, provided funding for the uh, labs in Wuhan, China, where they were doing, uh, you know, work on the coronavirus and trying to soup it up. And, well, I'm just saying, if, are you sure you want to trust these folks? When it comes to, hey, really, we're doing nothing wrong here. But what's really disturbing, okay, I understand. Politicians lie, governments lie. Security state people lie by the very nature of their job. Their job is to deceive. Their job is to mislead so the enemy doesn't get an advantage. Unfortunately, their definition of the enemy isn't just outside threats like, you know, radicalized Islamic terrorists or Russia, for that matter. No, their sights were turned on the American people. We saw this with the Patriot Act right after 9-11, and, and it hasn't let up since. Now, let's talk about Ukraine and Russia. This has been going on, the, the, the actual, I'm going to call it the special military operation, in which uh, Russia went ahead and sent in troops. For two years now, it's been hell on earth for the Ukrainians who are, are caught in the midst of that conflict, as well as uh, for the Russian conscripts that are being sent to fight it. And it sure seems like we're being steered towards a, a real conflict. In fact, it looks like the mask is coming off, and there are some who are saying, well, the U.S. needs to step up in Ukraine and fight the Russians openly, because they've been fighting them secretly since. Now, this is, Brian, you must hate America. No, I'm saying this because I love America, but I hate what my leaders are doing to this country because they are abandoning morality and they are playing chicken, or if you will, Russian roulette, in the most dangerous way possible. And just earlier this week, or I guess it was last week, we had uh, the head of NATO talking about, well, you know, Ukraine is going to be a part of NATO. How can Russia not respond? Would the U.S. not respond if China came in and, and set up military bases all along our northern border in Canada, started building biolabs and that kind of thing? Would we not take an interest in that and say, you know, we've got to put our foot down? Whatever happened to the Monroe Doctrine, right? You stop meddling in our hemisphere and stop trying to exercise influence that you shouldn't be exercising. But I'm just, look, I'm a nobody, all right? I'm a guy who's kind of paying attention here, but really, you know, what, who am I in the grand scheme of things? I'm nobody. Would you listen to somebody, though, like Ron Paul? Here's what he had to say in a recent uh, Lou Rockwell column. He says in a CNN interview, the normally very confident U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland sounded a little desperate. She was trying to make the case for Congress to pass another $61 billion for the neocons proxy war project in Ukraine, and she was throwing out the old slogans that the neocons use when they want funding for their latest war. Asked by CNN whether she believes that Congress will eventually pass that bill, Newland responded that she has confidence that we will do what we have always done, which is defend democracy and freedom around the world. I know, you can smell the fertilizer from here with those, with those words. Now, Newland, what Newland is attempting to do here, says Ron Paul, is what the neocons always do. They try to wrap their terrible policies up in the American flag and sell it to the American people 
as something reflective of our values. So if you oppose another neocon war, well, then you're unpatriotic according to their trickery. That's true, by the way. If you you even question the narrative of what they were selling us about Ukraine, well, you're just a useful idiot for Putin. You're just just promoting Putin propaganda. I mean, the disconnect from reality is intense. But it's also very dangerous because we're not just talking about, okay, it's going to be some localized, you know, normal, conventional conflict. This has the potential to go nuclear. And I'm not talking necessarily an end-of-the-world scenario nuclear, but I'm talking it, uh, it would definitely disrupt in a way that the world has yet seen. Something I'm not really stumping for. So, uh, Ron Paul says, Americans are waking up to the lies of the, neo- the neocons and more and more are realizing that there is no we when the neocons are trying to sell another war. It is them. The we in the equation are the people who are being robbed to pay for what will inevitably be another neocon failure. Now he asks, does any American still believe that Washington was defending democracy and freedom when it used a pack of lies to get us into Iraq, where a country was destroyed and perhaps a million people were killed? How about when after 20 years in Afghanistan, we managed to replace the Taliban with the Taliban? And Syria and Libya and all the other interventions... Ron Paul says, was Washington defending democracy when Newland and the rest of the neocons successfully overthrew a democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014? By the way, he's not wrong about this. They did help overthrow that government. He says it's getting harder and harder for the American people to choke down the war lies of the neocons. That's something that should make us feel optimistic. In the same interview, Newland said she was confident that when House members return to session next week, after they've been out in their districts hearing from the American people, they will vote to send the $61 billion to Ukraine. But Ron Paul says, looking at public opinion polls, however, it's far more likely that any member meeting with constituents during that break will hear the opposite. It's likely that they will hear a demand that not another penny be spent on the brutal, futile, and disastrous Ukraine war. According to a Harris poll taken earlier this month, some 70% of Americans want talks to end the Ukraine war. Americans no longer support the neocon war project in Ukraine. That's something to celebrate. Now, perhaps in a last show of desperation, Victoria Newland debuted another argument for keeping the war money flowing for Ukraine. She said, we have to remember the bulk of this money is going right back into this economy to make those weapons. Is that supposed to be attractive to the American people? The middle class and the poor are being destroyed by inflation and squeezed by a debased currency so the wealthy, politically connected weapons manufacturers can get even richer. Instead of money to rebuild this country and protect its borders, Ron Paul says Americans should be thrilled to see their work go up in smoke, literally, in Ukraine. Right. By the way, he's been one of the most consistent voices for good government, for limited government, and and for just war. No one will argue that there aren't times when when it is a regrettable necessity. But too many people have have embraced the idea that, no, it's got to be done. You know, you got to do unto others before they can do unto you. I'll admit, you know, if people think, well, you're kind of radicalized about this. Yes, I am. Because that was my wake-up moment. That's when I realized a lot of these people, like George W. Bush pretending to be conservative, were anything but. Why do they, you know, regard the Constitution as just a... GD piece of paper because they have no respect for it. They have no respect for its limits. They have no morality. 
and I'm certainly not going to go along with them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out to my sponsors, including LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, Ironsight Brewing Company. That's IronsightBC.com. It's a subscription coffee service. Very much worth your time if you need a cup of joe to get you going in the morning. And also QuiltAndSew.com. So, if you have ever read the novel Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand... You know, first of all, it's a long novel. I, I don't know if she was paid by the word, but if she wasn't, wow. <laughs> they probably could they, they could have made her a very rich woman by doing so. It's the 50-page speeches that, that put some people off, but for many people, myself included, that book was kind of a wake-up call as to what happens when people in power take it upon themselves to fleece the productive. And that's something that we're kind of seeing happen in real life at least at the hands of many of our, uh, our current uh, people in governance. Got an article here from Daniel Kowalski from the Foundation for Economic Education. It's titled, California Politicians Appear Determined to Bring Atlas Shrugged to Life. Here's what he says. He says, the plot of Ayn Rand's 1957 novel, Atlas Shrugged, can be briefly summed up as follows. The productive leaders and innovators of the country go on strike by disappearing from society to protest the cronyism, the corruption, and oppressive taxes that have made living a virtuous life unbearable. The nation is then on the brink of an economic collapse as the remaining politicians, intellectuals, and mediocre businessmen are only able to take from others and have no capacity to create or add value. Atlas Shrugged is very popular with those whose views lean toward libertarianism, while those who lean to the left react to it like a vampire does to a crucifix, despite never reading a page. Now, concerningly, the state of California seems determined to bring Rand's novel to life. Daniel Kowalski says, During the 20th century, California was the jewel of America. Beautiful weather, diverse landscapes, access to the Pacific Ocean, and other features made it the leading state in the nation. There's a saying, as California goes, so goes the nation, because so many or too many Americans, this seemed like the best place in the country to live and raise a family. Things seem to have changed, though, in the 20th, 21st century. When times were good, the government of California grew and spent more money than it had. In the short term, most people ignored this problem, but as time went on, the deficits grew and grew, and by the year 2000, the government had run up a debt of $57 billion. Now, 22 years later, that number has almost tripled to $145 billion. Since California is a state and not a nation, they couldn't print money to make up for the downfall, so their only options were to either cut spending or raise taxes. You probably guess what they chose. Yep, they chose the latter. For state income taxes, California has the highest rates in the entire nation. They also have a declining population with a loss of more than half a million people since a peak population of 39.5 million in 2019. And they did not all die of COVID. The majority are people who left to live in other states that didn't have oppressive taxes and draconian COVID restrictions. Now, while wise leaders might look at this indicator and see it as a sign that they should change course, wisdom seems to be in short supply for the political elite in California. Rather than move towards freedom, they're instead moving to erode and attack property rights even more through the form of a wealth tax. 
Of course, the people proposing this are only trying to sell the idea to the public, saying, "By well, just the super wealthy will be on the hook for this. The rest of us in the 90% will benefit thanks to the rich paying their fair share. By the way, that's in air quotes, the fair share. Now, the 16th Amendment was sold to the American people under this promise as well. And had people back then known that income taxes would lead to the system we have today, where the majority of people use the majority of their income to pay taxes, federal, state, local, property, sales, etc., then this proposal would have been dead on arrival. Today's politicians are trying to use the same tricks to pass a wealth tax, but the difference now, or between now and then, is that we should know better. Now, what makes California's proposed wealth tax even more disturbing is that they still wish to collect the tax for years after a person moves out of the state, like a feudal lord persecuting a serf for moving off his land. They also wish to impose the wealth tax on part-time residents for the portion of the year that they reside in the state. In other words, a family vacation at Disneyland might come with a tax bill from the state of California. And when tourism declines, gee, I wonder who the politicians will blame. Now, while the wealth tax has not yet become law, it's already prompting some of the mega-rich to move away from California and deprive California of its portion of the income tax and increasing the deficit. So it's not just individuals who are leaving the state. National corporations are also deciding not to do business there as well. And as inflation rages across the nation, the costs of everything have gone up. And building materials are no exception. It costs more to replace a house now than it did five years ago. To meet this new reality, home insurance premiums everywhere have increased. California's Department of Insurance has responded to the new reality by placing new regulations on the insurers to prevent them from raising rates on their consumers. Oh, that's just brilliant. The logic here is that the state has the largest population, so if insurers wish to do business in the largest market in the United States, then you have to abide by our rules. Now, the reaction has essentially been a boycott of the state by the companies. In addition to normal risks, California is also prone to natural disasters like wildfires, earthquakes, even mudslides from heavy rains. And with these new regulations limiting what prices could be charged, the cost of doing business in the state increasingly outweighs any potential profits. So as a result, many of the largest insurance companies in the nation, like Allstate and Hartford, are no longer issuing new policies in the state. California government policy has created an insurance desert in the state and with private business unwilling to respond because the once free market is no longer free, politicians have solved the problem with a government insurance system called FAIR. <laughs> Sorry, but that's just the Orwellian, the Orwellian nature. So that homeowners can comply with the insurance requirements for their mortgage. Under this state-owned enterprise, California residents get to enjoy reduced coverage at a higher premium than they would have been able to get before the politicians stepped in to help. This is a clear-cut black-and-white example of the standard of living decreasing. Now, Daniel Kowalski says, look, the theme of Atlas Shrugged is that the freedom of, the, of American society is responsible for its greatest achievements. The book warned that as freedom declined, so too would the standard of living. California's politicians seem determined to create, to recreate rather, the dystopian world of the book with oppressive taxes, a tax on personal property, and regulations that drive away private business. Someone really ought to tell them that the world of Ayn Rand's novel was not meant to be aspirational. Excellent commentary. I've got a link to this article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. One final note here. This is the article of the day, and it's actually it's, it's a review of the book, and, and it's, it's part of the foreword of the book, Life After Lockdown, written by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. 
Now, when it comes to incisive, honest analysis and critiques of the pseudoscience that was forced on us during the COVID pandemic, the Brownstone Institute is my go-to source. Now, that doesn't mean I will blindly believe anything that they say, but I'm saying they pull from a number of different sources. They pull from a number of different voices, including many voices of those who were either fired or marginalized or canceled or otherwise deplatformed for speaking the truth at times when government and its complicit uh, helpers, especially in the medical industry, would not share the truth. Marvelous information on, on the evil that was done to us. And Jeffrey Tucker, of course, has just been a, a stellar defender of liberty. And this, this is something that I really hope you'll, you'll take a look at. What I'm sharing with you, at least the link that I've placed in my show notes, is uh, the foreword to this book, Life After Lockdown, the foreword being done by Rand Paul. I hope that you'll not only take a look at the article, but I hope that you'll consider maybe reading Jeffrey Tucker's book so that you can see what the government lockdown accomplished. And he also, in, in the course, it's not just a, you know, a litany of, and hey, they did this wrong, and then they victimized us like this. That's all true. But Jeffrey Tucker takes it one step further and actually creates a roadmap or outlines a roadmap to make sure that this never happens again. We've been through a lot, all of us, and I mean worldwide, every place where there was government, people have been through a lot over the last four years. And not a lot of it was very pleasant. In fact, we, we learned some really unpleasant truths, starting with, yes, our, our, the, the people in power, the politicians, the bureaucrats, the administrative state, and their lapdog media would lie to us, and they continue to lie to us every chance they get. How many times were we pressured, you know, to take the vaccine? It's the only way we're going to stop this, uh, this terrible virus. I don't know about you, but uh, if, if <laughs> I've made some bad decisions in my life, but the, one of the decisions that I will never regret is not taking that stupid vaccine. And if you get my show notes, if you subscribe to them at thebrianheidshow.com, you will notice that I've included a little, a little meme today that's just kind of a booster for anybody who's felt like, wow, it has been really tough to hold the line these last couple of years. Uh, this one just says, whenever I'm feeling down, I just remind myself that a trillion dollars worth of propaganda didn't work on me. By the way, that's, that's a legitimate flex. And it's not just chest beating. That is an acknowledgement that there has never been a more concerted effort to try to get people to bend the knee to what those in power wanted than what we saw through the course of that uh, pandemic response. If you were one of the resistors, my brother, my sister, I'm proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show.